Book Three, Chapter Twenty of Robert Elsbeer by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Three, Chapter Twenty. Catherine's later convalescence dwelt in her mind in after years as a time of peculiar softness and peace. Her baby girl throve. Robert had driven the squire and Henslow out of his mind and was all eagerness as to certain negotiations with a famous naturalist for a lecture at the village club. At Mile End, as though to put the rector in the wrong, serious illness had for the time disappeared, and Mrs. Leyburn's mild chatter, as she gently poked about the house and garden, went out in Catherine's pony carriage, inspected Catherine's stores, and hovered over Catherine's babe, had a constantly cheering effect on the still languid mother. Like all theorists, especially those at second hand, Mrs. Leyburn's maxims had been very much rooted by the event. The babe had ailments she did not understand, or it developed likes and dislikes she had forgotten existed in babies, and Mrs. Leyburn was nonplussed. She would sit with it on her lap, anxiously studying its peculiarities. She was sure it squinted, that its back was weaker than other babies, that it cried more than hers had ever done. She loved to be plaintive, it would have seemed to her unladylike to be too cheerful, even over a first grandchild. Agnes, meanwhile, made herself practically useful, as was her way, and she did almost more than anybody to beguile Catherine's recovery by her hours of long-windowed chat. She had no passionate feeling about the place and the people as Catherine had, but she was easily content, and she had a good, wholesome, feminine curiosity as to the courtings and weddings and buryings of the human beings about her. So she would sit and chat, working the while with the quickest, neatest of fingers, till Catherine knew as much about Jenny Tyson's Wimbra lover and Farmer Treadle's troubles with his son, and the way in which that odious woman Molly Redgold bullied her little consumptive husband, as Agnes knew, which was saying a good deal. About themselves, Agnes was frankness itself. "'Since you went,' she would say with a shrug, "'I keep the coach steady, perhaps, but Rose drives, and we shall have to go where she takes us.' "'By the way, Cathy, what have you been doing to her here? "'She's not a bit like herself. "'I don't generally mind being snubbed. "'It amuses her and doesn't hurt me. "'And, of course, I know I am meant to be her foil. "'But really sometimes she's too bad even for me.' "'Catherine sighed, but held her peace. "'Like all strong persons, she kept things very much to herself. "'It only made vexations more real to talk about them. "'But she and Agnes discussed the winter and Berlin.' "'You had better let her go,' said Agnes significantly. "'She will go anyhow.' A few days afterwards, Catherine, opening the drawing-room door unexpectedly, came upon Rose sitting idly at the piano, her hands resting on the keys, and her great grey eyes straining out of her white face with an expression which sent the sister's heart into her shoes. "'How you steal about, Catherine!' cried the player, getting up and shutting the piano. "'I declare you are just like Millet's grey lady in that ghostly gown.' Catherine came swiftly across the floor. She had just left her child, and the sweet dignity of motherhood was in her step, her look. She came and threw her arms round the girl. "'Rose, dear, I have settled it all with Mamma. The money can be managed, and you shall go to Berlin for the winter when you like.' She drew herself back a little, still with her arms round Rose's waist, and looked at her, smiling, to see how she took it. Rose had a strange movement of irritation. She drew herself out of Catherine's grasp. "'I don't know that I had settled on Berlin,' she said coldly. "'Very possibly Leipzig would be better.' 
Catherine's face fell. "'Whichever you like, dear. I've been thinking about it ever since that day you spoke of it, you remember, and now I've talked it over with Mamma. If she can't manage all the expense, we will help.' "'Oh, Rose!' and she came nearer again, timidly, her eyes melting. "'I know we haven't understood each other. I've been ignorant, I think, and narrow. But I meant it for the best, dear. I did.' Her voice failed her. But in her look there seemed to be written the history of all the prayers and yearnings of her youth over the pretty, wayward child who had been her joy and torment. Rose could not but meet that look, its nobleness, its humble surrender. Suddenly two large tears rolled down her cheeks. She dashed them away impatiently. "'I'm not a bit well,' she said, as though an irritable excuse both to herself and Catherine. "'I believe I've had a headache for a fortnight.' And then she put her arms down on a table near, and hid her face upon them. She was one bundle of jarring nerves, saw, poor, passionate child, that she was betraying herself, saw her still that, as she told herself, Catherine was sending her to Berlin as a consolation. When girls have love troubles, the first thing their elders do is to look for a diversion. She felt sick and humiliated. Catherine had been talking over her with the family, she supposed. Meanwhile, Catherine stood by her tenderly, stroking her hair and saying soothing things. "'I'm sure you would be happy at Berlin, Rose. And you mustn't leave me out of your life, dear, though I am so stupid and unmusical. You must write to me about all you do. We must begin a new time. Oh, I feel so guilty sometimes,' she went on, falling into a low intensity of voice that startled Rose and made her look hurriedly up. "'I fought against your music, I suppose, because I thought it was devouring you, leaving no room for, for religion, for God. I was jealous of it for Christ's sake, and all the time I was blundering. Oh, Rose!' And she sank on her knees beside the chair, resting her head against the girl's shoulder. "'Papa charged me to make you love God, and I torture myself with thinking that, instead, it has been my doing, my foolish, clumsy doing, that you have come to think religion dull and hard.' Oh, my darling, if I could make amends, if I could get you not to love your art less, but to love it in God. Christ is the first reality. All things else are real and lovely in Him. Oh, I have been frightening you away from Him. I ought to have drawn you near. I have been so, so silent, so shut up. I have never tried to make you feel what it was to keep me at His feet. Oh, Rose, darling, you think the world real, and pleasure and enjoyment real. But if I could have made you see and know the things I have seen up in the mountains, among the poor, the dying, you would have felt him saving, redeeming, interceding, as I did. Oh, then you must, you would have known that Christ only is real, that our joys can only truly exist in him. I should have been more open, more faithful, more humble. She paused with a long, quivering sigh. Rose suddenly lifted herself up, and they fell into each other's arms. Rose, shaken and excited, thought, of course, of that night at Burwood, when she had won leave to go to Manchester. This scene was the sequel to that, the next stage in one and the same process. Her feeling was much the same as that of the naturalist, who comes close to any of the hidden operations of life. She had come near to Catherine's spirit in the growing. Beside that sweet expansion, how poor and feverish and earth-stained the poor child felt herself! But there were many currents in Rose, many things striving for the mastery. 
She kissed Catherine once or twice. Then she drew herself back suddenly, looking into the other's face. A great wave of feeling rushed up and broke. Catherine, could you have ever married a man that did not believe in Christ? She flung the question out. A kind of morbid curiosity, a wild wish to find an outlet of some sort for things pent up in her, driving her on. Catherine started, but she met Rose's half-frowning eyes steadily. Never, Rose. To me it would not be marriage. The child's face lost its softness. She drew one hand away. What are we to do with it? she cried. Each one for himself. But marriage makes two one, said Catherine, pale but with a firm clearness. And if husband and wife are only one in body and estate, but not one in soul, why, who that believes in the soul would accept such a bond, endure such a miserable second best? She rose. But though her voice had recovered all its energy, her attitude, her look, was still tenderness, still yearning itself. "'Religion does not fill up the soul,' said Rose slowly. Then she added carelessly, a passionate red flying into her cheek against her will. "'However, I cannot imagine any question that interests me personally less. I was curious what you would say.' And she too got up, drawing a hand lightly along the keyboard of the piano. Her pose had a kind of defiance in it. Her knit brows forbade Catherine to ask questions. Catherine stood irresolute. Should she throw herself on her sister, imploring her to speak, opening her own heart on the subject of this wild, unhappy fancy for a man who would never think again of the child he had played with? But the North Country dread of words, of speech that only defines and magnifies, prevailed. Let there be no words, but let her love and watch. So, after a moment's pause, she began in a different tone upon the inquiries she had been making, the arrangements that would be wanted for this musical winter. Rose was almost listless at first. A stranger would have thought she was being persuaded into something against her will. But she could not keep it up. The natural instinct reasserted itself, and she was soon planning and deciding as sharply and with as much young omniscience as usual. By the evening it was settled. Mrs. Laban, much bewildered, asked Catherine doubtfully, the last thing at night, whether she wanted Rose to be a professional. Catherine exclaimed, "'But, my dear,' said the widow, staring pensively into her bedroom fire, "'what's she to do with all this music?' Then, after a second, she added, half severely, "'I don't believe her father would have liked it. I don't indeed, Catherine.' Poor Catherine smiled and sighed in the background, but made no reply. "'However, she never looks so pretty as when she's playing the violin. Never,' said Mrs. Laban, presently in the distance, with a long breath of satisfaction. "'She's got such a lovely hand and arm, Catherine. They're prettier than mine, and even your father used to notice mine.' "'Even.' The word had a little sound of bitterness. In spite of all his love, had the gentle, puzzle-headed woman found her unearthly husband often very hard to live with? Rose, meanwhile, was sitting up in bed with her hands round her knees, dreaming. So she had got her heart's desire. There did not seem to be much joy in the getting, but that was the way of things, one was told. She knew she should hate the Germans, great, bouncing, overfed, sentimental creatures. Then her thoughts ran into the future. After six months, yes, by April, 
she would be home, and Agnes and her mother could meet her in London. London! Ah, it was London she was thinking of all the time, not Berlin. She could not stay in the present, or rather the rose of the present went straining to the rose of the future, asking to be righted, to be avenged. "'I will learn. I will learn fast. Many things besides music,' she said to herself feverishly. "'By April I shall be much cleverer. Oh, then I won't be a fool so easily. We shall be sure to meet, of course. But you shall find out that it was only a child, only a silly, soft-hearted baby he played with down here. I shan't care for him in the least, of course not, not after six months. I don't mean to. And I will make him know it. Oh, I will.' though he is so wise and so much older, and mounts on such stilts when he pleases. So once more Rose flung her defiance at fate. But when Catherine came along the passage an hour later, she heard low sounds from Rose's room, which ceased abruptly as her step drew near. The elder sister paused, her eyes filled with tears, her hand closed indignantly. Then she came closer, all but went in, thought better of it, and moved away. If there was any truth in brainwaves, Langham should have slept restlessly that night. Ten days later an escort had been found, all preparations had been made, and Rose was gone. Mrs. Laban and Agnes lingered a while, and then they too departed under an engagement to come back after Christmas for a long stay, that Mrs. Laban might cheat the northern spring a little. So husband and wife were alone again. How they relished their solitude! Catherine took up many threads of work which her months of comparative weakness had forced her to let drop. She taught vigorously in the school. In the afternoons, so far as her child would let her, she carried her tender presence and her practical knowledge of nursing to the sick and feeble. And on two evenings in the week she and Robert threw open a little room there was on the ground floor between the study and the dining-room to the women and girls of the village as a sort of drawing-room. Hard-worked mothers would come, who put their fretful babies to sleep, and given their lords to eat, and had just energy left while the eldest daughter watched, and the member of the club or the blue boar, to put on a clean apron and climb the short hill to the rectory. Once there, there was nothing to think of for an hour but the bright room, Catherine's kind face, the rector's jokes, and the illustrated papers or the photographs that were spread out for them to look at if they would. The girls learned to come because Catherine would teach them a simple dressmaking, and was clever in catching stray persons to set them singing, and because Mr. Ellesmere read exciting stories, and because nothing any one of them ever told Mrs. Ellesmere was forgotten by her, or failed to interest her. Any of her social equals of the neighbourhood would have hardly recognised the reserved and stately Catherine on these occasions. Here she felt herself at home, at ease. She would never indeed have Robert's pliancy, his quick divination, and for some time after her transplanting the North Country woman had found it very difficult to suit herself to a new shade of local character. But she was learning from Robert every day. She watched him among the poor, recognising all his gifts with the humble intensity of admiring love, which said little but treasured everything, and for herself her inward happiness and peace shone through her quiet ways, making her the mother and the friend of all about her. As for Robert, he, of course, was living at high pressure all round. Outside his sermons and his school, his natural history club had perhaps most of his heart, and the passion for science, little continuous work as he was able to give it, grew on him more and more. He kept up as best he could, working with one hand, so to speak, when he could not spare two, 
and in his long rambles over moor and hill, gathering in with his quick eye a harvest of local fact wherewith to feed their knowledge and his own. The mornings he always spent at work among his books, the afternoons in endless tramps over the parish, sometimes alone, sometimes with Catherine, and in the evenings, if Catherine was at home, twice a week to womankind, he had his nights when his study became the haunt and prey of half the boys in the place, who were free of everything as soon as he had taught them to respect his books and not to taste his medicines. Other nights, when he was lecturing or storytelling in that club or in some outlying hamlet, or others again, when with Catherine beside him he would sit trying to think some of that religious passion which burned in both their hearts into clear words or striking illustrations for his sermons. Then his choir was much upon his mind. He knew nothing about music, nor did Catherine. Their efforts made Rose laugh irreverently when she got their letters at Berlin. But Robert believed in a choir chiefly as an excellent social and centralising instrument. There had been none in Mr. Preston's day. He was determined to have one, and a good one, and by sheer energy he succeeded, delighting in his boyish way over the opposition some of his novices excited among the older and more stiff-backed inhabitants. "'Let them talk,' he would say brightly to Catherine. "'They will come round, and talk is good. Anything to make them think to stir the pool.' Of course, that old problem of the agricultural labourer weighed upon him, his grievances, his wants. He went about pondering the English land system, more than half inclined one day to sink part of his capital in a peasant proprietor experiment, and engulfed the next in all the moral and economical objection to the French system. Land for allotments, at any rate, he had set his heart on. But in this direction, as in many others, the way was barred. All the land of the parish was the squire's, not one inch of the squire's land would Henslow let young Ellesmere have anything to do with if he knew it. He would neither repair nor enlarge the workman's institute, and he had a way of forgetting the squire's customary subscriptions to parochial objects, always paid through him, which gave him much food for chuckling whenever he passed Ellesmere in the country lanes. The man's coarse insolence and mean hatred made themselves felt at every turn, besmirching and embittering. Still, it was very true that neither Henslow nor the squire could do Robert much harm. His hold on the parish was visibly strengthening. His sermons were not only filling the church with his own parishioners, but attracting hearers from the districts round Muirwell, so that even on these winter Sundays there was almost always a sprinkling of strange faces among the congregation, and his position in the county and diocese was becoming every month more honourable and important. The gentry about showed them much kindness, and would have shown them much hospitality if they had been allowed. But though Robert had nothing of the ascetic about him, and liked the society of his equals as much as most good-tempered and vivacious people do, he and Catherine decided that for the present they had no time to spare for visits and county society. Still, of course, there were many occasions on which the routine of their life brought them across their neighbours, and it began to be pretty widely recognised that Ellesmere was a young fellow of unusual promise and intelligence, that his wife too was remarkable, and that between them they were likely to raise the standard of clerical effort considerably in their part of Surrey. All the factors of this life—his work, his influence, his recovered health, the lavish beauty of the country—Ellesmere enjoyed with all his heart. But at the root of all there lay what gave value and savour to everything else—that exquisite home-life of theirs, 
that tender triple bond of husband, wife, and child. Catherine, coming home tired from teaching or visiting, would find her step quickening as she reached the gate of the rectory, and the sense of delicious possession waking up in her, which is one of the first fruits of motherhood. There at the window, between the lamplight behind and the winter dusk outside, would be the child in its nurse's arms, little wondering, motiveless smiles passing over the tiny puckered face that was so oddly like Robert already. And afterwards, in the fire-lit nursery, with the bath in front of the high fender, and all the necessaries of baby life beside it, she would go through those functions which mothers love and linger over, let the kicking, dimpled creature principally concerned protest, as it may, against the over-refinements of civilization. Then, when the little restless voice was stilled, and the cradle left silent in the darkened room, there would come the short watching for Robert, his voice, his kiss, their simple meal together, a moment of rest, of laughter and chat, before some fresh effort claimed them. Every now and then, white letter days, there would drop on them a long evening together. Then out would come one of the few books, Dante or Virgil or Milton, which had entered into the fibre of Catherine's strong nature. The two heads would draw close over them, or Robert would take some thought of hers as a text, and spout away from the hearthrug, watching all the while for her smile, her look of assent. Sometimes, late at night, when there was a sermon on his mind, he would dive in his pocket for his Greek testament, and make her read, partly for the sake of teaching her, for she knew some Greek and longed to know more, but mostly that he might get from her some of that garnered wealth of spiritual experience which he adored in her. They would go from verse to verse, from thought to thought, till suddenly perhaps the tide of feeling would rise, and while the wind swept round the house and the owls hooted in the elms, they would sit hand in hand, lost in love and faith, Christ near them, eternity warm with God, enwrapping them. So much for the man of action, the husband, the philanthropist. In reality, great as was the moral energy of this period of Ellesmere's life, the dominant distinguishing note of it was not moral, but intellectual. In matters of conduct he was but developing habits and tendencies already strongly present in him. In matters of thinking, with every month this winter he was becoming conscious of fresh forces, fresh hunger, fresh horizons. One half of your day be the king of your world, Mr. Gray had said to him. The other half be the slave of something which will take you out of your world, into the general life, the life of thought, of man as a whole, of the universe. The council, as we have seen, had struck root and flowered into action. So many men of Ellesmere's type gave themselves up once and for all, as they became mature, for the life of doing and feeling, practically excluding the life of thought. It was Henry Gray's influence, in all probability perhaps too the training of an earlier Langham, that saved from Ellesmere the life of thought. The form taken by this training of his own mind he had been thus encouraged not to abandon was, as we know, the study of history. He had well mapped out before him that book on the origins of France which he had described to Langham. It was to take him years, of course, and meanwhile in his first enthusiasm he was like a child, revelling in the treasure of work that lay before him. As he had told Langham, he just got below the surface of a great subject, and was beginning to dig into the roots of it. 
Hitherto he had been under the guidance of men of his own day, of the nineteenth-century historian, who refashions the past on the lines of his own mind, who gives it rationality, coherence, and, as it were, modernness, so that the main impression he produces on us, so long as we look at that past through him only, is on the whole an impression of continuity, of resemblance. Whereas, on the contrary, the first impression left on a man by the attempt to plunge into the materials of history for himself is almost always an extraordinarily sharp impression of difference, of contrast. Ultimately, of course, he sees that these men and women whose letters and biographies, whose creeds and general conceptions he is investigating, are in truth his ancestors, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. But at first the student who goes back, say, in the history of Europe, behind the Renaissance or behind the Crusades, into the actual deposits of the past, is often struck with a kind of vertigo. The men and women whom he had dragged forth into the light of his own mind are to him like some strange puppet show. They are called by names he knows, kings, bishops, judges, poets, priests, men of letters. But what a gulf between him and them! What motives, what beliefs, what embryonic processes of thought and morals, what bizarre combinations of ignorance and knowledge, of the highest sanctity with the lowest credulity or falsehood! What extraordinary prepossessions, born with a man and tainting his whole ways of seeing and thinking from childhood to the grave! Amid all the intellectual dislocation of the spectacle, indeed, he perceives certain Greeks and certain Latins who represent a forward strain, who belongs, it seems, to a world of their own, a world ahead of them. To them he stretches out his hand. You, he said to them, though your priests spoke to you not of Christ, but of Zeus and Artemis, you are really my kindred. But intellectually they stand alone. Around them, after them, for long ages, the world spake as a child, felt as a child, understood as a child. Then he sees what it is makes the difference, digs the gulf. Science, the mind cries, ordered knowledge. And so for the first time the modern recognises what the accumulations of his forefathers have done for him. He takes the torch which man has been so long and patiently fashioning to his hand, and turns it on the past, and at every step the sight grows stranger and yet more moving, more pathetic. The darkness into which he penetrates does but make him grasp his own guiding light the more closely. And yet, bit by bit, it has been prepared for him by these groping, half-conscious generations, and the scrutiny which began in repulsion and laughter ends in a marvelling gratitude. But the repulsion and the laughter come first, and during this winter of work Ellesmere felt them both very strongly. He would sit in the morning buried among the records of decaying Rome and emerging France, surrounded by chronicles, by church councils, by lives of the saints, by primitive systems of law, pushing his imaginative, impetuous way through them. Sometimes Catherine would be there, and he would pour out on her something of what was in his own mind. One day he was deep in the life of a certain saint. The saint had been bishop of a diocese in southern France. His biographer was his successor in the see, a man of high political importance in the Burgundian state, renowned besides for sanctity and learning. Only some twenty years separated the biography, at the latest, from the death of its subject. It contained some curious material for social history, and Robert was reading it with avidity. But it was, of course, a tissue of marvels. The young bishop had practised every virtue known to the time, and wrought every conceivable miracle, and the miracles were better than usual, with more ingenuity, more imagination. 
Perhaps on that account they struck the reader's sense more sharply. And the saint said to the sorcerer and to the practisers of unholy arts that they should do those evil things no more, for he had bound the spirits of whom they were wont to inquire, and they would get no further answers to their incantations. Then those stiff-necked sons of the devil fell upon the man of God, scourged him sore, and threatened him with death, if he would not instantly lose those spirits he had bound. And seeing he could prevail nothing, and being, moreover, admonished by God so to do, he permitted them to work their own damnation. For he called for a parchment, and wrote upon it, Ambrose unto Satan, enter. Then was the spell loosed, the spirits returned, the sorcerers inquired as they were accustomed, and received answers. But in a short space of time every one of them perished miserably, and was delivered unto his natural lord Satanus, whereunto he belonged. Robert made a hasty exclamation, and, turning to Catherine, who was working beside him, read the passage to her with a few words as to the book and its author. Catherine's work dropped a moment onto her knee. "'What extraordinary superstition!' she said, startled. "'A bishop, Robert, and an educated man?' Robert nodded. "'But it is the whole habit of mind,' he said, half to himself, staring into the fire, "'that is so astounding. No one escapes it. The whole age really is non-sane.' "'I suppose the devout Catholic will believe that.' "'I am not sure,' said Robert dreamily, and remained sunk in thought for long after, while Catherine worked and pondered a Christmas entertainment for her girls. Perhaps it was his scientific work, fragmentary as it was, that was really quickening and sharpening these historical impressions of his. Evolution, once a mere germ in the mind, was beginning to press, to encroach, to intermeddle with the mind's other furniture and the comparative instinct, that tool par excellence of modern science, was at last fully awake, was growing fast, taking hold, now here, now there. "'It is tolerably clear to me,' he said to himself suddenly one winter afternoon, as he was trudging home alone from Marle End, "'that some day or other I must set to work to bring a little order into one's notions of the Old Testament. Present they are just a chaos.' He walked on a while, struggling with the rainstorm which had overtaken him, till again the mind's quick life took voice. But what matter? God in the beginning, God in the prophets, in Israel's best life, God in Christ. How are any theories about the Pentateuch to touch that? And into the clear eyes, the young face aglow with wind and rain, there leapt a light, a softness indescribable. But the vivider and the keener grew this new mental life of Elsmere's, the more constant became his sense of soreness as to that foolish and motiveless quarrel which divided him from the squire. Naturally he was forever being harassed and pulled up in his work by the mere loss of the Muirwell Library. To have such a collection so close and to be cut off from it was a state of things no student could help feeling severely. But it was much more than that. It was the man he hankered after, the man who was a master where he was a beginner the man who had given his life to learning, and who was carrying all his vast accumulations sombrely to the grave, unused, untransmitted. He might have given me his knowledge, thought Elsmere sadly, and I, I would have been a son to him. Why is life so perverse? Meanwhile, he was as much cut off from the great house and its master, as though both had been surrounded by the thorn hedge of fairy tale. The hall had its visitors during these winter months, the Ellesmeres saw nothing of them. Robert gulped down a natural sigh when, one Saturday evening, as he passed the hall gates, 
he saw, driving through them, the chief of English science, side by side with the most accomplished of English critics. "'There are good times in the world, and I ain't in them,' he said to himself with a laugh and a shrug as he turned up the lane to the rectory. And then Boylike was ashamed of himself and greeted Catherine with all the tenderer greeting. Only on two occasions during three months could he be sure of having seen the squire. Both were in the twilight, when, as the neighbourhood declared, Mr. Wendover always walked, and both made a sharp impression on the rector's nerves. In the heart of one of the loneliest commons of the parish, Robert, swinging along one November evening through the scattered furze bushes, growing ghostly in the darkness, was suddenly conscious of a cloaked figure with slouching shoulders and head bent forward coming towards him. It passed without recognition of any kind, and for an instant Robert caught the long, sharpened features and haughty eyes of the squire. At another time Robert was walking, far from home, along a bit of level road. The pools and the ruts were just filmed with frost, and gleamed under the sunset. The winter dusk was clear and chill. A horseman turned into the road from a side lane. It was the squire again, alone. The sharp sound of the approaching hoofs stirred Robert's pulse, and as they passed each other the rector raised his hat. He thought his greeting was acknowledged, but could not be quite sure. From the shelter of a group of trees he stood a moment and looked after the retreating figure. It and the horse showed dark against a wide sky barred by stormy reds and purples. The wind whistled through the withered oaks. The long road with its lines of glimmering pools seemed to stretch endlessly into the sunset, and with every minute the night strode on. Age and loneliness could have found no fitter setting. A shiver ran through Ilsbear as he stepped forward. Undoubtedly the quarrel, helped by his work and the perpetual presence of that beautiful house commanding the whole country round it from its plateau above the river, kept Ellesmere specially in mind of the squire. As before their first meeting, and in spite of it, he became more and more imaginatively preoccupied with it. One of the signs of it was a strong desire to read the squire's two famous books, one, The Idols of the Marketplace, an attack on English beliefs, the other, Essays on English Culture, an attack on English ideas of education. He had never come across them as it happened, and perhaps Newcombe's denunciation had some effect in inducing him for a time to refrain from reading them. But in December he ordered them and waited their coming with impatience. He said nothing of the order to Catherine. Somehow there were by now two or three portions of his work, two or three branches of his thought, which had fallen out of their common discussion. After all, she was not literary, and with all their oneness of soul, there could not be an identity of interests or pursuits. The books arrived in the morning. Oh, how dismally well, with what a tightening of the heart, did Robert always remember that day in after years. He was much too busy to look at them, and went off to a meeting. In the evening, come home late from his night school, he found Catherine tired, sent her to bed, and went himself into his study to put together some notes for a cottage lecture he was to give the following day. The packet of books, unopened, lay on his writing-table. He took off the wrapper, and in his eager way fell to reading the first he touched. It was the first volume of The Idols of the Marketplace. Ten or twelve years before, Mr. Wendover had launched this book into a startled and protesting England. It had been the fruit of his first renewal of contact with English life and English ideas after his return from Berlin. Fresh from the speculative ferment of Germany and the far profaner scepticism of France, 
he had returned to a society where the first chapter of Genesis and the theory of verbal inspiration were still regarded as valid and important counters on the board of thought. The result had been this book. In it, each stronghold of English popular religion had been assailed in turn, at a time when English orthodoxy was a far more formidable thing than it is now. The Pentateuch, the Prophets, the Gospels, St. Paul, Tradition, the Fathers, Protestantism and Justification by Faith, the 18th century, the Broad Church Movement, Anglican Theology, the Squire had his say about them all. And while the coolness and frankness of the method sent a shock of indignation and horror through the religious public, the subtle and caustic style and the epigrams with which the book was strewn forced both the religious and irreligious public to read, whether they would or no. A storm of controversy rose round the volumes, and some of the keenest observers of English life had said at the time, and maintained since, that the publication of the book had made, or marked, an epoch. Robert had lit on those pages in the essay on the Gospels where the squire fell to an analysing the evidence for the resurrection, following up his analysis by an attempt at reconstructing the conditions out of which the belief in the legend arose. Robert began to read vaguely at first, then to hurry on through page after page, still standing, seized at once by the bizarre power of the style, the audacity and range of the treatment. Not a sound in the house. Outside the tossing, moaning December night. Inside the faintly crackling fire, the standing figure. Suddenly it was to Robert as though a cruel, torturing hand were laid upon his inmost being. His breath failed him, the book slipped out of his grasp, he sank down upon his chair, his head in his hands. Oh, what a desolate, intolerable moment! Over the young, idealist soul there swept a dry, destroying whirlwind of thought. Elements gathered from all sources, from his own historical work, from the squire's book, from the secret, half-conscious recesses of the mind, entered into it, and as it passed it seemed to scorch the heart. He stayed bowed there a while. Then he roused himself with a half-groan, and, hastily extinguishing his lamp, he groped his way upstairs to his wife's room. Catherine lay asleep. The child, lost among its white coverings, slept too. There was a dim light over the bed, the books, the pictures. Beside his wife's pillow was a table on which there lay open her little testament and the imitation her father had given her. Elsmere sank down beside her, appalled by the contrast between this soft religious peace and that black agony of doubt which still overshadowed him. He knelt there, restraining his breath lest it should wake her, wrestling piteously with himself, crying for pardon, for faith, feeling himself utterly unworthy to touch even the dear hand that lay so near him. But gradually the traditional forces of his life reasserted themselves. The horror lifted. Prayer brought comfort and a passionate, healing self-abasement. "'Master, forgive, defend, purify!' cried the aching heart. "'There is none other that fighteth for us but only thou, O God!' He did not open the book again. Next morning he put it back into his shelves. If there were any Christian who could affront such an antagonist with a light heart, he felt with a shudder of memory it was not he. "'I have neither learning nor experience enough, yet,' he said to himself slowly as he moved away. "'Of course it can be met, but I must grow, must think, first. And of that night's wrestle he said not a word to any living soul. 
He did penance for it in the tenderest, most secret ways, but he shrank in misery from the thought of revealing it even to Catherine. End of Book 3 Chapter 20